ask that you open our minds and hearts right now to what you have to say to us and what you have to teach us and how much you want to share with us, Lord. I ask that you pour your Holy Spirit upon this room, upon this place. Lord, fill us to the brim. Again, open our eyes and ears, Lord, because we want to know you. We want to understand you. We want to fall more in love with you. Lord, we give this time again to you, Lord, and I ask that you use me, that you take away any pride, any knowledge, any self wisdom that, that I, I may bring to this place and just use me, Lord. Use me as your tool, as your instrument to give you all the praise and glory that belongs to you alone. Speak to us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. All right, so I want to begin... I want to begin by uh, sharing with you this quote I read from John Newton that expresses one of the topics I'll be sharing with you this morning. John Newton said this, There is no right way to do a wrong thing. What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary? If at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promise of his presence is made. This morning, what we're going to be looking at is two passages. In the first passage, we'll see how Jesus refused to allow religious rules, regulations, and restrictions stop him from demonstrating his compassion. In the second passage, we'll see how the attraction of Jesus had grown substantially because of the miraculous works that he had done. Now, this morning, I've titled my message, Dumbfounded by Truth, because the truth of Jesus Christ will will always leave stubborn people dumbfounded. That's some of the, one of the things I've noticed about Jesus and reading about him throughout the Gospels is that when someone tries to trap him or someone tries to, to trick him or you know, use his words again, he always dumbfounded him. And so that's, that's what we see here. So by the time we end here, I hope that it's clear that regardless of how anyone found themselves having an encounter with Jesus, he was always in control. Now this morning, um, turn to your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be beginning Mark chapter 3. Um, in those Bibles you have in front of you, it's on page 553. Mark chapter 3. We're going to be first starting off with reading verses 1 through 4. Now he entered the synagogue again, and a man, with a, a man was there who had a paralyzed hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with a paralyzed hand, Stand before us. And he said to them, Is it lawful to the Sabbath? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do, what, to do good or to do what is evil, to save a life or to kill? 
but they were silent. Now, the synagogue Jesus entered was probably the same one, was more than likely the same one that he entered, that we read about, that he entered in in chapter 1, verse 21. And this is the same synagogue where he commanded the evil spirit that was in a man to basically shut up and get out of him. In verse ones in verse one and two, we also specifically were also specifically told that there that among those in the synagogue were a man with a paralyzed hand or a withered hand. Now I looked up the term in the original language, and this is a guy that whose hand had completely dried up. Um, I was talking to my wife about you know what kind of condition this would be, and it could be a various conditions, but but his hand was dried up almost like a prune. It was, it was strange. I, I, it's hard to imagine. But his, ma- his hand was paralyzed and it was withered. And also, the other pe- the other, um, among those in that synagogue were some of the Pharisees and scribes that we probably read about in chapter 2 that were criticizing Jesus and his disciples. Now, I don't believe that, that the man with his paralyzed hand was just happen- just happened to be there by coincidence. You see, verse 2 leads me to believe that, th- that he was purposely put there. That he was purposely put there by these scribes and Pharisees in order to accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath. I find it absolutely appalling that now these Pharisees and scribes were looking, had been looking for, for a way to, in order to find a way to accuse Jesus, in order to find a way to, to trap him. I find it appalling that now they were using a disabled man as a pawn in their vendetta to bring Jesus down. It's awful. It's awful to think about. It's also disturbing to know that although they saw and admitted that Jesus was, a, was performing these miracles, they couldn't acknowledge that Jesus had the power of God because of their strict legalism. And, and poor guy, he probably didn't even know what was going on. He probably didn't even realize that he was being used by these scribes and Pharisees. You know, he was just an, an innocent victim in this whole game of chess, of this whole game of, of upmanship that they were trying to play on, put on Jesus and play on Jesus. How, again, how sad, how desperate do you have to be? Let me ask you, why do you think they were willing to go to such lengths to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath? You see, it wasn't... It wasn't to see if Jesus, I'm sorry, you see, it wasn't the miracles that these Pharisees were concerned about. It wasn't that at all. By now, they knew that Jesus was a compassionate person. He knew that, that he was going to heal this person. And he wasn't gonna just going to just ignore this man that was sitting there with a withered hand. He was going to do something. The reason they went to such lengths was to see if Jesus would heal this man on the Sabbath. Now, one of the things we looked at last week was that God's original intent of creating the Sabbath was for it to be a day of rest and blessing. Now, in time, these religious leaders started putting additional rules, started putting additional regulations, started putting additional restrictions on what work was and what it wasn't. So by the time, by this time, the Sabbath restrictions on work had evolved to the point of neglecting basic human needs in order to satisfy these legal requirements. You see, the Sabbath had evolved from a blessing into a burden. 
Now, in the situation we have here, according to oral tradition, to heal on the Sabbath was work. Now, the, again, these were oral traditions that were passed down um, from, from long ago by Jewish uh, religious scholars. You see, only when life was threatened could medical attention be provided, but only to save a life, but not to improve the condition. Now, this is what these religious accusers were looking for. They were looking to see what Jesus was going to do. Because obviously this man's life wasn't in danger. You know, so they, for them, they were just wanted, as, uh, is he going to work on the Sabbath? Is he going to violate the Sabbath? You know, he claims to be a man of God, but a man of God would not, would not violate anything. It wouldn't violate the Sabbath. But what these religious leaders didn't understand is that they misunderstood what the Sabbath was all about. They had misinterpreted it. They had converted it into something completely different than what it was originally intended to be. It's, again, it's, it's astonishing how, how far they had gotten, how these rules and regulations had, had become and had gone, actually, and that, again, it was just becoming a burden on people. Now, I think Jesus understood what was going on, and that's why he asked the man to stand in front of everybody. Again, it would be like me asking Jacob, come here, stand here in front of everybody. And, and then you, you had my accusers or accused people out there, religious leaders being like, all right, let's see what he's going to do. See, Jesus was about to make a public demonstration of his previous declaration. If you remember, again, back in chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus told them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That was his declaration that he was Lord of the Sabbath. Here now, what he was going to do is demonstrate his authority over the Sabbath, his authority of, his authority of the Sabbath. But first, before he does that, he asks them a question. And this is the question he asks them. Is it lawful in the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil? To save a life or to kill? Now, I, I think in order to fully grasp and understand the impact of Jesus' question, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 12 and read, the, read his account of the story. So if you can, go... To the left, go to Matthew chapter 12. And what I'm going to do is read you the account from, from Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had, who had a paralyzed hand. And in order to accuse him, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But he said to them, what man among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A man is worth far more than a sheep. So it is, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. He then told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was restored. As good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. The question Jesus was posing was whether the Sabbath was a day of, 
of doing beneficial activity or not? The point Jesus was making is if it was, per, if it was permissible to help an animal out on the Sabbath, it was definitely permissible to help other, another human being. He was telling them that the rules and the regulations just didn't make any sense. It, it, it didn't make any ethical sense. How are you going to just let someone just bleed out and not do anything about it? See, again, it was, it was permissible to stop the bleeding, but to put a bandage, to, to put ointment on it, to, to, to help that person out, it, that's work. That wasn't allowed. And, and Jesus, well, that doesn't make sense. How are you going to pull an animal out of a pit, but yet just let this person stay in the same condition he's in? It didn't make any sense. Jesus' Jesus's question wasn't a difficult one. The one he was posing, when he was asking them, wasn't a difficult question at all. And anyone with any ethical common sense will be able to answer this question correctly. But what we see here with these Pharisees and these scribes is that he was dealing with people that were stubborn, that stubbornly refused to accept common sense. Even when it comes to ethics and morals, it was like rationalizing to a brick wall. They couldn't, it just didn't make sense to them. It's like, again, rationalizing to someone that just wouldn't listen, someone that wouldn't hear you out. And that's exactly how they responded, and that's exactly how they acted, like a brick wall. They refused to answer the question. In fact, we're told that they remained silent. Now, I, I, I don't think they remained silent because they couldn't answer the question. They remained silent because they, they rather, rather because of the hardness of their hearts. They wouldn't answer the question, not because they couldn't, but because they wouldn't. Again, they were just too stubborn, that hard-heartedness. You see, Jesus had rejected their view of the Sabbath and exposed their inconsistency of how, wi- of how willing they were to help an animal on the Sabbath, but not a person. Now, I think it's... Now, let me, let me finish reading the rest, of the, the rest of the passage there. Starting in, verse, starting in verse 5. After looking around at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their hearts, he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. I think, it's, I think it's understandable why Jesus felt the way he did when he looked around at them. Verse 5 says that he was angry, and then he, he felt sorrow. He had this sorrow in his heart. Now, in the original language, the word anger means that agitation of the soul, or just that indignation, like, like ah, like... What's wrong? It's that anger. You just inside you. I'm sure many of you have felt it. All of us have felt it. Just that anger inside, like, especially when you're dealing with someone that's stubborn and just won't listen. It's it's that agitation of the soul. And then the word sorrow. In the original language, means inwardly grieved. In other words, Jesus was furious by the stubbornness and hard-heartedness, but. 
right afterwards, he was grieved inside for them. He just felt, he felt sadness, the sadness in his heart because these people, these scribes, these religious leaders just wouldn't listen, just had a one-track mind. And he was like, ah, these people just understood what I was talking about. If these people just were able to hear me, they would be able to see clearly, clearly what's going on here. But again, their rules and restrictions were, and their religiosity were just blinding them to the truth of what Jesus was trying to do. And again, what we see also here is the human side of Jesus with the same emotions and with the same feelings we feel. Now, there was a time in church history where, where people believed that Jesus was either pure spirit or, or, or just... Uh, nothing but a human being. But again, we see here that he had feelings and he had emotions. He had the same reaction. Well, he, he felt the same things that we do when we deal with, when we're dealing with difficult people. But see, with him, rather than reacting out of those emotions, Jesus turns his attention to this man and tells him, Stretch out your hand. Again, I, I, I try to imagine and picture the scene in my head. Sitting again, everyone's sitting there in the synagogue, probably hundreds of people. And these religious scribes and Pharisees sitting in the front. Again, I'm going to use my son as an example. I, I tell my son, reach out your hand. And his hand is completely restored to its original state, just like the other hand. It just, it just gets the life back into it. The blood is circulating, the veins are pumping, the veins are pumping the blood. It just comes back to life. I mean, I don't know again about you, but the sight of that, I would give glory to God. I would just be praising God for what I just saw, what I just witnessed. You know what, I, I, I do. You know, if you were to put yourself there and you were to put yourself in Jesus' feet, Jesus' shoes, you can see why he was just so inwardly grieved at what he was seeing with these religious leaders. Well, obviously these Pharisees, these scribes, didn't like how they had just been made to look like fools in front of this entire synagogue. They, they, they were left with their jaws open and they, could, they just couldn't answer their, Jesus' question. They wouldn't answer it. Now, the fact that they then went out and began plotting with the Herodians shows how much they wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to stay, they were now doing anything they possibly, talking to anyone they possibly could to get rid of Jesus. Now the, the Herodians and Pharisees were two distinct classes of people that during this time avoided talking to each other. They avoided just any association. 
See, the Herodians were a group of people that were loyal and served the interest of King Herod at that time. They represented the social class. They represented, you know, the secular people, the social, the, the, the politicians, and, and those that, um, that only looked out for the welfare of society. They represented the social establishment. While the Pharisees were a group that were strictly loyal to ensuring that the rules and regulations of the Torah had been passed down and those of the oral traditions were adhered to. These religious leaders represented the religious establishment. They represented the church at that time. So what we have here going on right now is just this unholy alliance where now these, this, the Herodians and the Pharisees were now working together to find a way to stop Jesus using any means necessary. They were looking for any means necessary, look, trying to find any means necessary to get rid of him, whether, it's to, whether it was at, at this time just to shut him up or actually destroy him, to, to kill him. Now, what I see here is it's, it's unfortunate that even today, People are more adamant about keeping their long-held traditions than being open to hearing and understanding the truth. This is especially true when it comes to religion and more specifically to Christian denominations. Now, I'm not here to bash any Christian denomination. I'm not here to bash any church at all. But what I'm talking about is that religion, those traditions, those, uh, those rules that these denominations have established in order to keep people away from showing the love of Christ, from really showing what the love of Christ looks like. There are people out there who claim to know Jesus but refuse to meet the basic needs of others because it would violate the religious rules, regulations, and traditions. They take verses like 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18, and make, it, make that their central point of doctrine when dealing with unbelievers. They ignore how throughout the Gospels, Jesus exemplified love, mercy, and compassion on every class of people. We have the example of the woman caught with adultery. We have the, woman, we have the example of the woman at the well. We have the examples of the centurion. We have, I mean, Jesus exemplified what it was to have that love, mercy. And he just wasn't, he didn't. For him, it wasn't about, oh, are you a Jew or you're not Jew? I can help you and not help you. Or if you're not a Jew, I can't help you. For him, it was just about showing that love, compassion, and mercy on every class of people. You see, on loving others, I want to read one more. Um, I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 5. This is what Jesus said on love, on loving others. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his, his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you, will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Then he ends with, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father was perfect. 
that's what he was talking about. That's what he was getting, getting at with it when it comes to love. And when we're, we're also told about Jesus' compassion in Matthew 9.36. We're told in Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out like a sheep without a shepherd. And this is what Jesus said about mercy. Be merciful, the merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. It's therefore important that we constantly examine, we constantly examine ourselves, we constantly examine our hearts on the way we look and treat others. Now let me ask you these questions and see how you, how you would react. Or, yeah, what would be your reaction? How would you react if that politician you absolutely hated that you've been seeing on TV asked you for a drink of water? If he asked you, hey, can you give me a drink of your water? How would you react? Would you throw that water in his face and say, you know what, I don't believe in anything you're saying or doing and just you know, walk away from him? Or would you share, would you be able to love him and share that cup of water with him? How would you react towards that homosexual coworker that just lost their partner? Would you be like, you know what, they deserve it. Or would you actually show that love and compassion and mercy that Jesus showed on the, with the woman caught in adultery? Would you show that love and compassion? There's people out there that are hurting and they just have been going through difficult things and, and all they're looking for is just someone to talk to, someone to, to hear them out. And we see again just Jesus doing that. And that's what, again, I, I find so amazing about Jesus and what attracts me so much to him is that he never refused and he never neglected and he never despised. He had that love and compassion. The other example I wanted to give you was what if that house, what if the house of that Muslim family living in your block burned down? Would you invite them in? Just because they wouldn't, they don't believe what you believe, just because they have a different view of the world and a different view of, of, of God, would you just say, you know what, you deal with it, it's your problem. You know what, I'm a Christian and we're not gonna allow your type of people into my house. It's sad, but people act that way. You see it on TV, you see it, you know, uh, and it's, it's, it's horrible that they're, they're putting a bad mark on the name. They're misrepresenting Jesus. You know, and, and that's my heart here is, is that this church will be able to, this new church will be able just to represent Christ in the community, in El Paso, in the world, just with a heart of love, regardless of, of their background, regardless of you know, what, what their lives are like. I mean, all of, us, all of us have done some horrible things in our life. You know, but Jesus reached down and gave us his loving hand and said, come up and just... And I remember that specifically in my life. I felt that love and embrace from Jesus and from from that moment on, my life was never the same.
As Christians, I sincerely believe that we can all that we can show any unbeliever the love of Christ without compromising our faith. But in order to do that, we have to be willing to see to see everyone through the eyes of Jesus. And not through the lens of religious or political affiliation, social status, economic classification, and or level of education. Now, one thing again I also noticed is that don't be surprised when people oppose you for doing good and saving lives in the name of Jesus. I think one of the reasons Jesus was so angered in the story was because those religious leaders should have known better. They should have known better. When this happens, keep in mind, when you're being opposed, keep in mind what Jesus did. He didn't react to their stubbornness. He didn't keep, re- he didn't keep arguing with them. He didn't banter with them back and forth. He turned to the man with the withered hand and proceeded to do what everyone knew that he, what he was going to do. He displayed compassion on the man, on this man, and healed him. I think this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it well. Nothing that we despise in other men is inherently absent from ourselves. We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or don't and more in the light of what they suffer. We have to again just see people through the eyes of Jesus. In their suffering, in their pain, in their just, in, in what's going on with them. Don't look at them through the eyes of the world, through your own biases, through your own discriminations, through your own uh, feelings of uh, that they're just lower than you. Look at, it, look at them through the eyes of Jesus. Now before our time is over, let's look at this last passage. We're in Mark chapter 3. starting in verse 7. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd would not crush him, since he had healed many who had diseases, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, those possessed fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. So Jesus leaves the area he was in. And, and this, from what we again understand in chapter 2, um, the synagogue was in Capernaum. So he leaves that area and goes back to the area of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. By now, he was followed by a large group of people from all over the regional map. Now, I do have a map up here that I want to... I'm a, I'm a visual learner, and for me, I have to... When I hear cities like this, I have to break out the map just to see what's going on. Let's see if it comes up. Okay. So here's the map of Jesus, the map uh, during the time of, uh, of Israel at the time of Jesus. All right. We have, we're told that 
a large crowd followed him from Galilee. You have Galilee here. All right, Judea here. Idumea down here, beyond the Jordan River, this way, and around Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon up here. So you see that he had been here in Capernaum, and now the word about him, about the miracles he was doing, had spread all the way up north to Sidon, all the way down to Edomia, all the way east of the Jordan. I mean, he was getting, there was just people following him every, from just all over the region. Now, upon, up, up to this point, these large crowds were following Jesus. Were following Jesus because either, and this is what I came up with. These are some of the reasons why they probably were following Jesus. Either they had placed their faith and trust in him. It was a curiosity to see what he would do next. Some may have only been interested in what Jesus could do for them rather than for them. And another reason is others, others I believe, may have been there to find out for themselves if this Jesus was the promised Messiah that the religious leaders failed to recognize. Now because of the large volume of people following him, Jesus was wise enough to know that he needed an exit plan in case the crowd got out of control. Now, if you see, when people become desperate to be alleviated from their suffering, rational thoughts and behaviors seem to disappear. A peaceful crowd can turn into an ugly mob real quickly just to be alleviated. As an example, imagine yourself being there. If someone you loved with all your heart was suffering and the only thing that stood in the way between their healing and this crowd of people, wouldn't you do anything possible to push through that crowd? Wouldn't you just want to just move everyone out of the way to get that person that you love to feel that heal to get that healing touch from Jesus? Now, imagine hundreds, maybe thousands of people trying to do the same thing. So you can see how what could be what was what was a peaceful crowd can end up being just a, a mob, a violent, unruly mob. So what does he do? His plan was to have a small boat ready to take him far enough into the water, into the water to continue teaching them from there. So he made these plans with disciples. Hey, get this boat ready. Get this boat ready so we can, so I can just, if I need to, go into the water and just go out far enough to be able to teach from there. It makes sense to me. And I think, I think if any of us would probably be doing the same thing, would probably do the same thing. Now, I want you to, to, to notice something else. Among those in a crowd were those that were possessed by evil spirits. And as you can see, they couldn't withstand being in the presence of Christ. They knew he was the Son of God, and it terrified them. It terrified them because they knew what he was capable of. They knew that what their end result is going to be. And they, it just scared them. You know, I, I wonder what they were doing there in the first place. And maybe, 
you know, the, a loved one of that person that was possessed had brought him there. But once there, we see that these evil spirits were completely terrified. They couldn't withstand being in the presence of Christ. However, just like in chapter 1, verse 34, Jesus would strongly warn them not to make him known. You see, Jesus wanted each person to decide for themselves, based on his words and actions, whether he truly was the Messiah or not. He didn't want these people to be influenced by demonic evil spirits, whether, hey, that's the Messiah, that's the Son. No, he wanted people to make their own minds. Their own, he, wanted to make, he wanted to allow people to make that independent choice, decision on their own, whether he was the Messiah. And that's what he, again, wants from us. He wants you to make that choice based on the evidence, based on the facts, based on what we read and know about him, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the King of Kings, that he came to save you from all your sins. He wants you to come and make that choice and decision on your own. If we claim to be following Jesus, I think we all need to ask ourselves why. Are you following him because you, truth believe, you truthfully believe in him? Are you, following him? are you following him just to see the miracles? Are you following him to hear his message? Or are you following him to find out for yourself if he truly is who he claims to be? Now, if you're following him because you believe in him, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this, but as it is written, what eye did not see and ear did not hear and what never entered the human mind, God prepared this for those who love him. If you're following him just to be a spectator and not a listener, keep your eyes. I, I trust you just, and this is what I tell you again from experience. Keep your eyes fixated on Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Even if you're not you know, it seems you're not listening and you just want to see what's going on next, what Jesus is going to do next. Just keep looking, keep watching him, keep seeing him do these miracles, keep seeing him change the lives of people. <laughs> and it won't be long till your eyes, ears, and heart will connect themselves to Jesus. It's not going to be long. Now, for some people, it does take longer than others. But if you keep your eyes just fixated on Jesus, fixed on him, that connection will take place, that connection between the eyes, the ears, and the heart. And you're going to be like, oh my goodness. I see the truth. I understand the truth. And it's just going to just drop you to your knees. If you're following Jesus to find out the truth about him, listen to what Jesus had to say in Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, at, at, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he also says this in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me tell you I want to tell you to be open to the truth of Jesus and give him the opportunity to speak his truth into your life give him that chance give him that chance just to speak into your heart
and you'll see, allow him to do that miracle within you. Allow him to, to heal you, just like the man with the withered hand. If you have that withered heart, just watch and see how just he brings life back into that heart. How he'll just, that blood will start pumping, that blood of just, the blood of Christ in, in inside of you. And what an amazing, that is an amazing experience. Now in a minute, we will, I'm going to be distributing these elements. Now the Bible specifically tells us that communion is meant to be celebrated within the family of believers. And as a family, it is truly an honor and privilege to gather together in order to fulfill what Christ has asked us to do in remembrance of him. Now, before I do, before I pass out these, the, the elements here, I want to extend an invitation to those who are outside the family of believers who are or unsure where they stand. If you've never asked Jesus to come into your life or would you, or, and would like to be a part of this worldwide family of, of believers, I'm going to lead you in a prayer in just a second. Again, understand here what's, what's going on. This is, again, what he ordained for us and an in, in ordinance for us that he wanted us to, to, be a, to take part of. If you're not sure where you are, if you're not sure why you're following him, if you're not, if you're not even following him, and you come to a point where like, yeah, I want to follow him now. I want to be part of this family then all you have to do is just, is just pray this prayer in the, in, the, in the quietness of your heart. If you can, please bow your heads as we pray. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, just pray this prayer. Lord God, I, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've blown it. And that my relationship, because of those sins, Lord, because of my disobedience, my relationship with you has been broken. But I confess right now that Jesus, that I believe in Jesus. I believe that he came and died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he came to free me from the bondage of sin. God, I ask that you fill me with the Holy Spirit. I receive that forgiveness that can only come from you and do, and I ask that you fill me, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can see you and understand you more. Thank you for being my Lord. Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for forgiving me my sins. And thank you for welcoming me, welcoming me into this family. In Jesus' name, amen.